0: One of the things that one of my coaches said to me a long time ago was, as soon as you're hired as the CEO, accept that you've been fired as a CEO. And I think that's good advice for everybody because we're all going to get there. We're all going to be in a position where, and by the way, you know whether you're fired or you fire yourself, accepting that life is not perfect and that we have mistakes and embracing those opportunities to learn I think is one of the more important things that leaders can do.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. When I was driving down here, I grew up in the Bay Area. And I was having a somewhat weird reflection because this feels like the... Can we call you the OGs of technology in this part of the Bay Area? I used to work at Palo Alto Networks. That's right across the way. HPE. It was cool to come down here and you see... The logos and the company names, this is just a really important part of the Bay Area.
0: Well, I think one of the things that, and thank you for including me in the OG category, one of the things I love about this location, which we did not know when we got it from this office, if I go to the corner of this office and use the binoculars, I can actually see Salesforce Tower. So you see the entire Silicon Valley ecosystem that most of us think of as being Silicon Valley. Of course, the Valley is all over the Valley, East Bay, West Bay, South Bay, all that. But you can see all of it pretty much from this office, and that's kind of cool that you kind of know that you're at the heart of what's making things tick around the globe. That's got to be a proud thing for you. Yeah. It was not expected, but when I realized that, it's like, wow, this is kind of cool that I can see all the things that you talked about, all the companies you talked about, and be a part of how the world is changing, hopefully for the better. That's what we work on, and that's an impact that's something
1: that something you don't take lightly. Right before we started recording, we're sitting in your office. It's beautiful. And you're having a reflection that you did not want the corner office. You were forced into it. Can you tell why? I've always enjoyed just sitting and being a part of a team. They literally forced you into this office. They did. Otherwise, you would have sat at a desk on the floor. Yeah.
0: yeah. The, the, the last office we had, I was on the floor. I typically would pick someplace not quite in the middle because I'd like to be able to see out and see all the different team members. And actually, in that office, I told everybody who was on my team, I have to be able to have line of sight to you. So it was a big building, maybe 10,000 square feet. And I wanted to be able to stand up and see if my CFO was available, if my head of people was available, if the head of product was available. And so they're like, okay, that changes where I can sit. Like, yeah, I know. I just want to know if you're at your desk. I can just walk over and talk to you. And so I liked being kind of in that mix of it. And the head of people just was, you know, really adamant that we're gonna be going public because we hadn't got the office yet. We're gonna be going public. Your conversations are gonna get more and more private. You're going to need to have more opportunities to have those conversations and you want people to be able to come in and feel at home and feel comfortable. And so you're sitting at one of the sitting areas in the office, like it's a comfortable place to come. And I got pictures up, I got family drawings up, I got all that stuff to make me feel comfortable. And hopefully that helps others feel relaxed so that when we have these conversations, whether they're personal or professional or strategic, whatever they are, people are going to be comfortable, be at their best. And
1: that's the goal. How much do you think the environment that you create impacts the way that people behave and act. I think the environment that any of us creates impacts
0: what comes back. This is the butterfly in the forest, the rainforest that starts a hurricane someplace else, right? And so I think all of our actions impact how people respond to us. We're all stimulus to the other person. And you only have to be speaking in front of others to actually realize that it is so much easier, in my opinion, to speak in front of a crowd than it is just to speak one-on-one. Like you could have given me all these questions and I could have answered them and it would be an interesting podcast. Hopefully this is going to be a great podcast because of the dynamics of just us and the eye contact, all those things. I think that stimulus factor is really important. We work hard at Bill to have a culture and environment that actually creates a level of comfort and trust that actually drives you to actually get to that Mm, that's going to make a difference.
1: When the team was telling you, you got to come into this office, we're about to go public. You did go public. Ended up being, I mean, you've built a giant company. I wasn't kidding when I said, like, you are one of the stalwarts of Silicon Valley. Today, 9 billion or 12 billion, I'm sorry, market cap. Not too long ago, much, much more. And I suspect we'll get back there at some point. How many people do work here? Do you know? We have over 2,500 employees that are working every day to make lives
0: easier for SMBs.
1: Does the Renee? kicking and screaming, coming to the corner office, feel a sense of weight of the responsibility of this type of company with this many employees? It probably feels pretty fast to you that it happened. Yeah. I mean, it's 17 years, but I would say the
0: weight, one of the ways I describe the weight of being the CEO is something that I think folks don't usually think of this way, but when I share this, people kind of say, ah, that makes sense. It's not lonely at the top. It's lonely in the middle. So you think about the CEO role as being something like an hourglass, and you think about all the information that has to come through any leader, but in my case, well, I'm the CEO, to have decisions made. And so I have, if you want to think about it this way, I have customers and investors that are on top, and they're asking and demanding and wanting and needing things from the company. And then I've got employees and partners and constituents across that support the infrastructure that need things for me. And so I'm in the middle regulating information, sharing views, opinions, insights, whatever you want to say and call it. But that being in the middle, that's where it can be lonely. And the reason I use the hourglass is like it is actually the most constricted point in the flow of time. And so I work hard not to be that constriction, but it is something that has a lot of responsibility. The responsibility for me hasn't changed whether we were five employees or whether 2,500 employees. I've always felt like my responsibility is to make the most of this vision, the most of the culture that we're building, and to really have the impact. And the nice thing about being at our scale is that there's more opportunity to have impact. There's sometimes more at risk, for sure, but there's also more opportunity. And that's the
1: balance and the responsibility of owning that and making sure that you deliver on that every day. I genuinely believe you when you say that you're not at the top of this organization. I believe you. Yeah. You don't feel that way. I don't feel anybody is. It's the lonely in the middle.
0: There's always, I mean, obviously I have a board of directors and I have investors and we have people that influence investors. I mean, there's always people that influence and shift the focus of a company that I will need to respond to. I would say where I am responsible for that strategic vision and value set, that is my job. And from the organization perspective, like right, the example I gave is above are customers and investors and I said below are partners and employees and constituents to kind of help make that happen. And I think that's the difference. It depends on your perspective. Obviously, you can turn the hourglass upside down and all of a sudden your employees are on top. And that happens sometimes. And there are some days when that's exactly all I do. And there are some days when exactly all I do is focus on what customers need or what investors need. So that constricting focus of information, like the organization, whether it's internal or external, is looking to me to kind of provide that leadership around where there's conflicting challenges and problems to be solved. So from that perspective, yeah, maybe I am at the, I wouldn't say at the top, but I am responsible for it. So I don't like being at the top. Another example of this is, At our dining table at home, I never sit in the same place. You're kidding me. Because I don't want my kids to think, okay, dad's at the head of the table. So I sit in a different spot every day. And so they don't know where the head of the table is because I don't believe in a head of the table. I think anybody can contribute and lead. And that's just a core philosophy that I have is that if you act like you're at the top, then. That's all you get from people is they expect you to make all the decisions. No, I don't want to make all the decisions. I want to be here to support you. I'll get into any conversation you want. I'll let you know where I think you need to make decisions. But I'm not going to be that particular leader that's going to be demanding and articulating a demand uh, versus just saying, hey, let's have a conversation and get through this together.
1: When your kids sit down for dinner, first of all, how often are you home for dinner with the kids? You picked me at a good time in that we are now officially empty nesters.
0: And so that's hard. There's some emotional challenges with just that part of your life, that big of a, a sense of love and connectivity to your children that is now less connected. There's lots of ways we are still connected, obviously, but they're in college. Really, if I go back to everything up to two months ago. Oh, it's raw. Yeah, it's raw. But you know, everything up to two months ago, I was at home for dinner pretty much whenever they were, except for business travel. And my business travel maybe was 50 days a year. That's not bad. Right. 50 days were 50 nights where I was not here. And so then they maybe had 50 nights where they were with friends. And so that's 260 nights. And I would say out of the 260, I mean, I would say 80% of them, we were together. And one of the things I would do is like from a business context, if I needed to see people for business, it would be, well, I'd go meet them for a glass of wine or appetizers, but then I would be home. My kids were swimmers. Dinner always started at eight the last five years. So I had more time to be able to make that work out. But I made it a focus when you get back to prioritization, how do you kind of manage the stress and the challenges that any startup founder or CEO is going to have? One of the things that I realized early on is that the most important thing is to take care of yourself. And I get energy from a couple of things. I get energy from my kids, my family, my wife. I get energy from exercise and I get energy from work. So, you think about the big rocks, the boulders that you have to kind of get done first. It's like, okay, I'm going to be there for my kids. I'm going to do what they need. And I'm going to focus on what is it that they need. And so, would I love to have had more time with them as they were growing up? Absolutely. Would they have loved to have had me more time? Absolutely. There's no way that you can make everything work. Meaning, they had their own friends. Since they've been teenagers, me saying, hey, let's go for a hike has become a lot harder. Because they have things they want to do. Or me saying on a Saturday night, hey, let's go out for Mexican. That's a lot harder because, hey, dad, I'm seeing friends, right? So that was my point is like, but you have to make sure that you prioritize and say, I'm going to be there for them
1: whenever they want. And that's what I tried to do. And I feel pretty good about what I was able to do. Can I ask you in those buckets of energy? What is it? Uh, You said work, working out, and your family. Yeah, reverse Uh, order, but yeah. Reverse order, yeah. What are you excluding? I imagine there's also other things in your life that you are excluding from those buckets that give you energy. I'm curious, what are some things that come to mind for you that you need to prioritize or stack rank out, I guess? One of the examples
0: is if you were to ask me about Game of Thrones, I'd be able to say, I know it's about dragons and something yeah. else. I'm just I'm not a big TV person. Most of the books that are in the bookcase over there that are at home are self-help books about being a better leader that people give me. So have I read as much fiction and philosophy that I would have liked? Those are examples of not getting me time. I think we have a strong circle of friends. I could do more to make that a bigger part of my life. Now, the fact is, now that we're empty nesters, we are exactly doing that. We're spending more time with friends. I just got back from a weekend in Tahoe with some guys that I enjoy hanging with, and I'm trying to do more of that type of activity. So those are things I gave up the years that I had kids and was running the company. I think one thing... I just would recommend anybody who is thinking about this path. It's just you have to know where your energy comes from. There's one I left out, which is music. And we'll probably end up talking about that because it's a huge theme of how I lead. And one of the ways I get ideas for how to lead is actually just what songs I'm listening to and just the philosophy and the ideas and the framing that any artist is doing and how does that relate to your personal life that day. So I do spend time listening to music. When you work out, do you listen to music? If I'm on the Peloton, absolutely. And I pick based on the playlist, not based on what the ride is. I just I just want a good playlist. If I'm running, no. If I'm someplace where there is natural stimulus for letting your mind go free, then I use that. But if not, if I'm in a gym, then it's going to be music.
1: And how often do you work out? I'm curious. Uh, every day.
0: Every day. It started a great friend, investor, partner, Brian Jacobs, gave me a book probably close to 10 years ago called Younger Next Year and younger next year it was written for people i was not 50 at the time it was written for people that over your 50 like how do you have a better more successful happier life over 50 and it came down to three things exercise which was most of the book diet and then social And so from a diet perspective, my wife, Joyce, we make sure that we eat very healthy and I eat much healthier because of her. I still like my cookies, which you've probably heard about. I still like to eat my cookies, but we just eat a lot of really healthy foods. I feel good about that. I was exercising maybe three days a week back then, and the book kind of said, hey, if you exercise every day, you'll notice it. And there's some science behind it. I'm not going to get the science right, but essentially when you're hit 20, there are certain enzymes in your body that stop doing what they are used to doing. But if you injure yourself, they actually kick back in. And so exercise is a way of injuring yourself every day. And so I'm reading this book. I'm a slow reader because I have too many other things going on. Six weeks in, read this paragraph that says, most people after six weeks will start saying that they notice some mental acuity sharpness that they hadn't seen before. I play Ultimate Frisbee every Tuesday that I'm in town. And what I had just had a great game and a number of guys had said, how did you catch that? Like my eye-hand coordination was better than it had ever been. I've been playing with this group now for over 23 years. And it says 10 years I've been playing with 13 years, right? And I read that paragraph, I'm like, oh, if it's doing this for Ultimate Frisbee, what's it going to do for the business? And if you look at the trajectory of the company, there is a significant part of it that we kicked it into a much higher gear after I started daily exercise. And how
1: long ago was that? About 10 years ago. And how often do you miss a daily exercise? You know, in a given year, it's probably 20 days that I miss. 20 days. So maybe once every two weeks-ish, you'll miss an exercise. It tends to be two or three
0: days every other month because, hey, I injured myself. There's some injuries that you just can't work out through, or I'm traveling and I can't get to it or something like that. But it's rare for me to miss, and I've now worked it into my life. That habit is so strong that it just happens.
1: I'm the same way. I work out every single day for no other reason than I find it easier to work out seven days a week than I do four days a week. Just like any habit, I find it easier to do it every day without thinking and making a decision. Is this a thing that I'm going to choose to do today? And there's not many things. There's so many decisions that we make in our lives, and there's only a few that I really don't want to be a decision. That's one of them. Sleep is one of them. What I eat for lunch is one of them. And I feel like as long as I nail those things every day, they're just kind of running in the background. That makes me feel like I have my life in order in some way, so I can go tackle the rest of things.
0: It totally makes you feel that you have your life in order. You actually do have your life in order because you're giving something to your body that's gonna be helpful. I think it's a huge stress relief. I know they say exercise is better later in the day than first day in the morning, just schedule-wise, I just no get way. it done in the Gotta morning. Yeah, and it sounds like you're the same way, but it is a huge stress release. There are days, if I am stressed, when I get home, I won't exercise, but we'll go for a walk. Mm-hmm. Movement helps. Movement is something that helps me think, Some of the best ideas when I'm running or on the Peloton, I come up with ideas for the business. Typically, what I do is I make up a new word because I can't remember all the ideas. Let's say it's five things. Maybe I want to talk about marketing. Maybe I want to think about go to market. Maybe I want to think about a product idea for X, Y, and Z. I would come back with MGP. And so I remember MGP. And say, like, okay, I want to go talk to marketing. I want to go talk to go the marketing team. I want to go talk to the product team. And so, anyways, you have to have some way of just letting the universe, I think, feed you and then moving on. If I wanted to solve the problem, I would stop the run and then I would solve the problem. You remember the first letter of the acronym of the thing. Right. And the longest I will come up with is five letters. Yeah. But you know, on a 45-minute run, an hour run, like you have some good ideas. And do those letters generally correspond to departments within the company? No, companies? I was just giving that example okay. right now. Okay, but it could be anything. It could be anything. It might be something to do with my kids because obviously I am not just a CEO. I'm also a dad. And yeah. it could be something to do with you know, my friends, my wife. It could be any of those things. More often than not, the, the most ideas are going to be around the business. Yeah. Your love for music, where did that come from? It came from my dad and my grandmother. So, my grandmother had a beautiful soprano voice, and after dinners were always her singing. And my dad was an amazing, amazing musician. And he had a talent, you know, he could play by ear for sure. He played piano, he played trumpet, and a lot of jazz. And so, just a lot of things that in the family were around music. My mom, actually, while not musically inclined, Every car ride where she was driving around, we had the radio going and we were singing. It was such a happy memory. And you know, you think about it I was in '56, right? So the '70s had really great music, in my opinion. And that's what Mom was singing, right? And everything from obviously the her childhood, which would have been the '60s and late '50s, all the way up into the '70s and '80s. And so then, playing trumpet, then that really cemented it. I played trumpet for about 12 years and it was a big part of my life. It was probably a couple hours a day, and so that cemented. My um, stress relief from music, as well as my appreciation for talent. You know, one of my favorite pastimes is to go to concerts. I typically like to go to concerts where it's fairly intimate, meaning on a four to eight musicians on a stage. And the reason being is when you get that close to a virtuoso, for me, it's very spiritual. You're closer to God. How are you to find God? We all want to be the best we can be. And if you know music in some capacity and you see an
1: artist do something that you could never fathom yourself, you're like, okay, there's more work for me to go do. It seems like you really look up to your father from the things that I could tell. It seems like he was a big influence in your life. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, parents are always, I mean, mom, still talk to mom a couple of times a week. So
0: yes. But dad, from a business perspective, a huge influence.
1: And what he was, uh, what did he do? So uh,
0: the funny thing is the uh, apple does not fall far from the tree. So my grandfather had maybe, I don't know, seven businesses in his life. My mom and dad had probably half a dozen or so in their lives. Some of them overlapped with my grandparents. And so all of them since the 60s have been essentially data processing financial services for s and and accountants. So the night I was born in 1967, my mom and dad had a defense contractor in DC that they had sourced through an accountant which is one of the ways we get customers today that had a payroll GL job that needed to get done. And she was not feeling well. I was two and a half weeks early. She and my dad talked and he said, well, let's just finish this job and then you can take the next few days off. And that would have been a long weekend for her. Right? So she's 110 pounds walking around with 50 pound card trays, punch card trays with dad helping until like 1230 at night. I was born at 230. So that's the way I came into the world was, Uh, around serving SMBs and around financial services.
1: And how much of the dinner table conversation for you was oriented around work and seemingly hard work?
0: You know, a lot of the conversation was around work. And and I've often said, I'm fond of saying that the dinner table MBA was a huge win for me. I've changed that a little bit more recently as I think about what my kids wanna be doing in life. And it's not so much the MBA It's just the conversations were around leadership, ultimately. Like, how do you serve people? So, you have customers as a a business owner. But, you know, if your son's going to be a teacher, how does he serve the community? How do you help the kids get to where they're going? Sharing those challenges and problems at your dinner table with your family, one, will help you get ideas about how to do something different. And two, will help them develop those same type of Servant leadership skills that I think are so important. And so we talked a lot about the challenges, whether it was product or customer facing, whether it was employee facing. We talked about all those things at the dinner table. We were part of the business that way. And it was very, very interesting from a a learning perspective and from a, a leadership perspective. And I think leadership is something all of us can do each and every day. And some of us just have titles that have it in it in the title, but it's
1: something we can all do every day. Some of us resent those titles. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think I read somewhere that you said some Christmases, there were lots of presents, and other Christmases, there were not. Tell me more. My parents had, like I said, multiple businesses. Many
0: times, I think most of my life, they had at least two going at the same time. And, you know, the businesses could have seasonality. Well, it was the second business that actually kind of made for the cash flow, right? I mean, there was the first business probably paid the bills and paid for whatever college was coming and stuff like that. But the second business was, okay, what type of vacation are we going to go on? What type of presents can we give each other and stuff like that? And so there was some cyclicality in how the you know, we were spending. And what I would say is that regardless of what they're spending, they always found a way to show the love. But there was one year in particular that just had a blowout year and it was fun as a kid, not so much that you were getting this much, but that your parents wanted to make you happy. And I think that's the thing that I took from that is like anything we do as a parent, like how do you make your kids happy? How do you help them be happy today? How do you help them be happy 50 years from now? And those are challenges that parents have. You have to try to balance both. The presence was all about today. I knew my parents were focused on my happiness and my fortitude, if you will, about how I was going to be a good human in the world. But to have a a Christmas when you got a trumpet, you got a water ski, you got a basketball hoop, you you got all these things in one Christmas. I'm like, oh my God, they really just want me to be happy. And that was special.
1: And your dad, it sounds like is no longer with us. Yeah. He passed in 2008. How proud would he be seeing this, especially given the mission? Yeah, it's hard for me to, to say, uh,
0: but what I can tell you is one of my proudest moments was 2007 he was still alive and I had left uh, and started this in 2006 and we were getting ready to go down to the demo conference and you know we did win a Demo God award at that conference. So I was going through my practice demo with him, happened to be in Florida right beforehand. And I had told him what I was doing and obviously being a small business owner his whole life, he understood some of it, but then I showed it to him. And then when I was done, he said, holy shit, Renee, this is so f***ing amazing. I had no idea this is what you're working on. This is going to change the world. And that was 2007. That was 16 years ago that he could see it. I mean, it's obviously it was my vision, so I was hoping that people would see it. But he knew so much about what he had worked his life on, and he's like, oh my God. So for me, that was a very... Proud moment because he didn't get a chance to be on the NYSE platform when we rang the bell, which would have been awesome to have had him there.
1: What do you mean you don't know what what he'd think now? I think you do know. I think I wouldn't assume. <laughs> what do you mean? You serve five hundred thousand small customers today. Yeah, well, I wouldn't assume what anybody thinks about anybody. That's just part of I me.
0: Mean, what I hope he's proud. Do I think he's proud? I probably think he would be very proud. Yeah, but I wouldn't assume that. That's his to give away. Actually, pride is a very interesting word for me. I've told my kids very few times that I'm proud of them. I've told them how much I respect and admire the work they're doing, but pride to me has a sense of ownership over it. I do think my dad could be proud because he did influence me, but when other people come to me who had no influence in the company and they say, Hey, I'm so proud of you. It's like, thank you. I mean, I do say thank you, but that word means to me, if I am proud of you, it's because you contributed some way. And so I don't want to assume that I, I think my dad should be very proud of me. I think my mom has told me she's proud of me, but it's not something I would ever assume. Rather than happy for you, as an example. They're always happy for me, but when I talk to my kids, I want to be more specific about, you did the work. You're the one who got the straight A's. You're the one that got into the good college. You're the one that did this, this, and that. So I am super, super grateful that you're able to do X, Y, and Z. And I think those traits are going to help you be successful. Now, there are some of those traits of X, Y, and Z where I do feel like I had influence. And so then I might say, and I'm proud of you, but it's rare. It's a handful of times But I'm like, I'm really proud of that decision because I just think people need to do things on their own. So this is, it's more a philosophical thing. I just think when you do things for others, to have others be proud of you, that's actually not good. That makes sense. And so if you use that word, you could actually stress the wrong thing. If you do things because, hey, this is super important in my opinion, for your happiness, and then you're happy, then I can be super happy that you learned something from me and you'd end up having a great life.
1: What an amazing perspective. Can you tell the story of your father learning how to play the piano? He was born with six fingers, four on his left and two on his right.
0: And he loved music. His mother was an amazing soprano singer. And he really wanted to play piano. So his first instrument when he was five or six was piano you know, within six to seven months or something like that, he was already being upgraded to Mozart. Teacher's like, I don't have any music that he can play because it's all written for 10 fingers. And so he switched to trumpet at that age, which is one of the reasons I ended up playing trumpet. But he got to be 15 or 16 and he told his parents, look, I just want to play piano. And they're like, well, nobody can teach you. He's like, I'll figure it out. Just can we get a piano? So they bought a piano. And it was one summer, and you listen to my grandmother tell stories, like it was every day, his hands were bleeding. He played so much every day that calluses, you know, went through the calluses and just would bleed. But what he did was he came up with a style of jazz that is unique to him, if it makes sense, right? This is what he was forced to do. So he would use his left hand and the pedal on the left side of the piano to actually take a chord and cascade it and hold it Why then he used the same left hand to fill in on the melody. So it's just a very interesting style. He was very, very talented. Like I said, he could play by ear. Got to play with a lot of great musicians because for whatever reason, Winter Haven had a lot of great musicians when he was growing up and chose not to go into music because he met my mom and had my brother. So went into the business world. But his ability to have that persistence was just something that he did it in every way in his life, but that's the most concrete way to
1: kind of demonstrate the grit, if you will, to actually make things happen. One of the reasons why I was so excited to have you on the show is because I have a fervent belief that company building is a very personal endeavor and I mean that in every way in the sense of the time that you take away from all the personal things in your life in the emotional roller coaster that comes with almost a you against you battle being lonely in the middle and I think that it's very difficult to extract the personal from the professional in the journey of company building. I suspect you would agree. Absolutely. And part of me, as I'm listening to you reflect on your parents, I feel when you think about your customers and I've heard you speak, it feels like you think about them. That's who you're serving. I feel like you know that pain point so acutely. And I feel like it creates such an empathetic leader in you, just a really rare superpower. Do you agree with, I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I would agree that growing up in and around
0: small businesses that served small businesses has created a connection to those businesses that has informed all of our vision, strategy, and execution. When you're a small business, maybe another way of thinking about this is I think it is one of the most authentic things you can do. It's one of the riskiest things you can do is to say, you know what? I think the world needs to see this part of me. Because when you shut up shop, you're telling the world that this is something that they need to have. Whether it's cookies or pizza or financial services, you're telling the world they need to have this. And you are at risk of being told, no, we don't need that. And so there's a tremendous amount of risk that's required and people will do whatever it takes to make those visions come to reality. And having that connection and that empathy to the SMB and just knowing their lives are super, super fulfilling, but also super, super challenged. That's what I want to help. That's why I want them. I think they are part of society. It's more than just the largest employment, new job employment figures, which we always talk about. I describe s bs as the glue of our society. And the reason I say there's a glue is like, if you think about all your favorite experiences in life, it's probably because some s is at the heart of it. Your favorite piece of clothing, your favorite time would have been at buying it at some store maybe that just had a unique opportunity. Your favorite meal is probably not a chain. Your favorite place to vacation is not because of the vacation. It's probably because of the whole experience that's at the place that you go. And all of these things come back to people putting their heart and soul out. So we talked about my dad and playing the piano, like putting your heart and soul into whatever it is, is something that helps the world. We all need to have more heart and soul. And I think SMBs are doing that every day. And so I think to the extent that we can help support them, I think is super important. And another area that I think about is that which came first, capitalism or democracy, And I think the element of capitalism, and a lot of times I get to the answer is capitalism, the element of capitalism that kind of drives democracy is freedom of expression. Think about all the businesses up and down El Camino or whatever street your listeners are on. Think about all the businesses that you will never ever drive by and step into, and yet they're surviving. And it's that freedom of expression because somebody else will stop in. And that freedom of expression is so important that when we honor that at the essence of kind of commerce, it ends up extrapolating into how you show up, what clothing you wear, what your political beliefs are. But that freedom of expression is this kind of core to our society.
1: Yeah, almost like when you start a company, part of that reason could be that it is one of the most extreme ways to imbue your values into the world. And company building is, in the framework of capitalism, pure expression of your values into the world i think that's very true
0: and i think the healthy part is it's also the world's imbuing their values into you you cannot go like i have a belief that hey there's a certain way you want to start and found a company and, and grow a company but i have to be listening more than i'm talking that's how you grow. That's how the world gets better because you're actually having that conversation with the world. And so I feel good about the core values I have and how we frame the company, but we have to be listening to what customers need, how they think about it. And I think that's true with everybody. If you just kind of have all the answers and that's actually less interesting.
1: How many kids do you have? We have two. I don't think you're going to answer this in the way that I think you will, but would you be disappointed if your kids didn't start a company? Absolutely not. You don't
0: care. I don't care. And I've told them I don't care. And the odds of either one of them starting a company is pretty much zill. I won't say zero because I always think that there's a chance for anything. But I think what I would be most happy about, and this is why I kind of said the MBA is probably, the dinner table MBA is probably the wrong analogy, is I have a lot of confidence my kids are going to lead and make a difference that they're going to find a way to make a difference in this world and make the world better. And that's something that I think all of us are trying to do. And for me to know one son that wants to be a teacher, the other one is just starting his college experiences. so doesn't have his firm plans, but all of his discussion points are around how he wants to contribute to society. And that's super cool. And I think that's all anybody really wants to do. And so that's all different vantage point from starting a company. We put a lot of praise on founders
1: and folks that start companies, but it's just another job. Do you have a set of family values in the same way that you have a set of company values? Yeah,
0: it was an interesting exercise. I don't know why I did this, but it was 10 years ago. We were on vacation together and we're having a wonderful dinner at a place called Dona Rosa in Positano. Highly recommend that restaurant if anybody's ever going to be in Positano. Anyways, my wife and I had been there 10 years before when she was pregnant with our first son. And I sat at dinner and I said, look, what does it mean to be in our family? And I just took notes. And I wrote down all the things that the kids said, that Joyce said, and I agreed with all of them. And then it was beautiful because maybe six months later it was Father's Day. And for Father's Day, Joyce had had the kids basically write them down on parchment paper and beautiful like iconography that they had put together. And it's next to sort our of kitchen table. So it's things like, perseverance, curiosity, love, respect, humor. Those things that kind of make up a family are super important. And our foundation actually is named after those values in Hawaiian.
1: Do you have a way of intentionally reinforcing those values at home in the same way that you do at work? The intentionality of just doing that exercise and then having it on the wall.
0: It's literally on the wall. It's on the wall. And then we live them. I think my oldest was probably 15 or 16. And I can't remember what it was that Joyce and I were trying to kind of help him with. And I said to her, I just had this realization that the most important thing we can be right now is a role model for our kids. There's always going to be things that parents want to teach their kids. And there might be times when we say, hey, Alec or Bennett, like, this is something I really want you to understand for me and do with it what you want. There might be some of those moments. But ultimately, being a role model is probably the most important thing any of us can do as a parent, and like showing your values every day and how you interact with them is super important. And so, that was the intentionality: was are these values ones that we already have? And that's why it was kind of interesting because it was a representation of what I said to the family: what does it mean to be in our family? And they said, well, sense of humor, have fun, persistence, you know, respect, all these things that hard work, right? All these things, everybody. The oldest was 10, the youngest was eight. They already got it. All of us as families have values. The question is, have you articulated them? And it's just a great exercise to articulate it.
1: Do you believe in legacy? Uh, In what sense? Do you care what people think about you when you die? No, I
0: care what people think about me today. That's the more important thing. There's a book I give out to folks when they have a a baby. There's two books I give out, but one of them is The Three Questions. It's a children's book, but it comes out of Tolstoy's but I think with the same three questions. Anyways, two questions are, who's the most important one? What's the most important thing? And when's the most important time? It's a really simple story. But at the end, the answer is the most important one is the one you're with. So right now, that's you. The most important thing is to love them. Make sure they know that they're getting what they need from you. And the most important time is now. So legacy, I don't care about that. I care about like in every moment, every present moment that I have, am I doing something that is actually going to make the world better? And sounds grandiose, but it's the way I think. Now, can there be intentionality beyond that? Yeah. Can it be, when I think about building the company, do I want this company to be around 50 years from now? I hope I'm alive at 106, but I probably won't be the CEO anymore, right? Absolutely. Is there intentionality that I put in to make sure the company keeps going? Yes. Does that mean I care about the legacy? No. It means I care about building a great company today because that will keep serving SMBs and SMBs always need a champion.
1: Do you think you've always had that perspective? Meaning the company's growing still like crazy. I mean, Q3 total revenue increased 63% year over year, and it's already giant company. This thing's not going away anytime soon. But there was a day when you were, I don't know, probably in your late 20s or early 30s, when your entrepreneurship journey started, where it was not this. It was a much harder trying time for you. Do you feel like you felt this way when you were still pounding your head against the wall, trying to make things work in a more existential way, company-wise, than now? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean,
0: I, I think I have. Yeah, And the reason I say that is that essence of intentionality can get in the way of lots of things in life. So intentionality can get in the way of spontaneity. And I am spontaneous. But the example of this, just go back to high school. I was so focused and so intent on what I wanted to be three, five, 10 years out, that I didn't hang out with friends as much as I should have. And when I look back, and that's actually a regret I have, that I didn't actually hang out with enough people, but I also feel really good. I got through college and got a master's in four years. At Stanford, nonetheless. Well, yeah, (laughs) but it took a ton of focus to do that, but it meant it came, and this is back to your one of your earlier questions, like, what did you give up for that? And so there are things I've given up, but when you ask, have I always had this kind of thinking about, well, where am I going? I think the answer is yes. One of the things I've said to any employee that's worked for me at Bill is and this is part of the sales pitch that you might get from me all i can tell you is that 20 years from now when we're sitting on a beach drinking margaritas and eating guacamole and i like to serve margaritas and guacamole to the team that we're not going to be talking about how much money we made we're going to be talking about the lives we changed, and those lives are going to be smbs and they're going to be each other and so all we don't know is what beach and what tequila we're drinking and i've said that for the whole time that this company's been formed and growing. Because I really believe that, that if you focus on the important aspects of life, which is those three questions, you really focus on those three questions every day, things unfold and there's opportunities for you to continue to have impact because of the way they unfold. And so if you focus on the wrong three things, you're not going to get that opportunity. So I've always focused on how would I be able to look back and be like, yep, I'm really happy. So one regret, not enough time being spontaneous. Plenty
1: of spontaneous times in my life, but not enough. Can I ask you any other shining regrets? It's a weird way of asking it, but things that stand out? Personally, no. The challenge is always like I've always been, uh,
0: you could ask my mom this question. It's like, you know, Renee just never sat still. We never had chores to do. My parents did not care. Get good grades, be a good musician, do those things, and house take care of itself. And yet- every time I had nothing to do, I was out weeding a beach. I was out cutting the roses. I was doing the dishes. Mom never asked me. So I don't sit still. That's just the energy I have. And that not sitting still does get in the way of like, I could have called friends and gone water skiing. And I did do that some, just not as much. So that regret I do have, and I'm working on that, getting better at seeing those moments and those opportunities at this point. But I think that's the only personal regret. Professionally, Probably the only regret that comes to mind is all the learning you have at this point, you sure wish you'd had it sooner.
1: Totally. When you were taking on the brunt of those learnings at PayCycle in the early days, it actually, reading about these stories blew me away. You started it in 99, which is an interesting time to start a company. And what happened here? Did the board ask you to step down as CEO? Yeah, it did. Can I tell you why I'm so shocked? Honestly, and I'm not saying this just to flatter you now. You strike me as such an incredible CEO. I feel you were born for this. I really do. And I felt this way before we even walked in, which is why I do prep. Like My composition of you, Renee, was that there was a higher power that determined that you were going to be a CEO one day. And so reading about your first go at it and not even it not working, but you basically getting booted. Is that fair to characterize it that totally. way? That blew me away because I'm like, wow. Well, do you want the next thing to blow you away?
0: Yeah. All of those investors invested in Bill and some of them are still on the board. How do you reconcile that? Uh, they were right. They were right. I had failed to lead in a way that was necessary. I'll give you the full story in a second, but just one shift, mental shift, and it didn't happen immediately. Maybe it did, but it wasn't able to articulate immediately. The title on my card is CEO and founder. At PaceCycle, it was co-founder and CEO. And the reason I say that is like the CEO has a different set of responsibilities as a founder. One of the examples I would share here is that I will always be a founder of Bill. No matter what I do, I will always be the founder. No matter how I come into the office and connect with employees or investors or board members, that founder is just there. I don't have to do anything to improve my ability to be a founder. Like, I'm just, I'm a founder. My job as a CEO, it changes every freaking day. You think about the scale. We've 10x in four years. My job today has far more responsibilities and requirements than it had four years ago. So how do you get ready for that? You don't get ready for that unless you internalize that your job is changing every day and that you have to work hard at actually being the better version of yourself tomorrow that's required today. And that's not an easy thing to do. It takes a lot of coaching. And I have coach that helps me a lot on this. That's the thing that I think I missed a pay cycle. And so what happened, the simple version was, it was not clear where the buck stopped. We had the co-founder, we had somebody else who was a board member and our COO, and we were running the company like a triumphant. And we had some challenges and growth, and the board wanted more executive decision, if you will, more direction that was being set and not trying to get alignment and consensus across everything. And I failed to do that. And so I realized that, and actually this is an interesting part of the story. And, you know, I can recommend this. I know the odds of this happening are are not great for most of the founders out there, but I happen to be married to a VC. And so when I would come home, when I came home that the day before and like, oh, they called a unscheduled board meeting tomorrow. She's like, Renee, you're so screwed. You know, I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, well, you've talked about these problems for six months and you haven't done anything about it. You've just talked about it. They're done. So when I went into the meeting the next day, I said, hey, guys, I've screwed up. We've talked about this problem. We've had consultants come in. I haven't done anything about it. There's one option that you guys have, which is to let me go. The other option is I stay here and we get me a coach or two and we see if we can actually pull it out that way. And they had another meeting. They said step out for 30 minutes, and I did. And then they came back and said, look, unfortunately, we think it's too late. But that was the beginning of me thinking about my leadership and the requirement of you have to be clear about owning and being accountable for the decisions. And it's too easy to actually ask somebody else to be accountable.
1: When you were driving home that day, back to your wife, who knew, who knew? What was going through your head? Do you remember? Well, the first thing on
0: driving is I drove straight to the office because I had to go to work. It was raining. Oh, the board meeting wasn't at the office. It was at one of the VC's offices. Okay, yeah, yeah. It was raining. It had been raining that morning, just light drizzle. It was November or whatever. And as I'm driving down 280, the sun does come out and the song on the radio is I can see clearly now. And I realized, I could see clearly, I realized how I had screwed up. I realized what I was going to do differently as a leader. I started thinking more earnestly about Bill. I'd already had the idea and I started thinking more like, hey, if this, because I first went into the role of CFO and leader of biz dev for the company and we did some great things in the 18 months that I did that. But I started thinking about other things. So by the time I got home, there was, the hard thing that day was the emotional challenge of sharing with others in the company, which actually wasn't the day. It was probably the next day. So the harder day was the next day when we actually announced to the company the changes that were coming. And that was emotional. There were people that were confused. In some ways, it was like me falling on my own sword because I said, you're not doing it. I'm doing it. I'm going to tell folks how this is going to be good for the company. And you know that was
1: emotionally hard. But I tell you, when I got home, I felt good. How long did it take you before you started actually working on Bill? Everybody
0: has their own tricks to how they fall asleep at night when they can't sleep. I'm a problem solver. So one of the things that if I'm going to fall asleep, I'm going to problem solve. When I can't fall asleep is I'm problem solving something that has to get solved right then. And that's stressful because I don't have all the answers and I need something solved. When I can't fall asleep is something that doesn't have to get solved now, but it's still a problem. And so bill, the idea of bill became that problem that I would lay awake at night when I was managing and leading pay cycle. It's like, uh hmm, okay, I can't solve that problem for pay cycle. Let me go think about that other idea. Hmm, that's interesting. And I would wake up in the morning and I would jot down three or four things. And so that process happened maybe for two years, once or twice a month. But I had several pages, maybe five pages of notes by the time I had started. Became convicted that this was the thing that I needed to go do. And that was helpful. So by the time I started Bill, I had been noodling at night, if you will. Hadn't done any work other than the noodles. And then got right into it and had so much fun every day.
1: And you were quite sure that you were going to be qualified Meaning you had basically just been fired for all intents and purposes as the CEO. You could clearly see why that happened. You could clearly round that out and just full steam ahead go into the next one knowing, yep, I'm gonna do this. I think to be
0: fair to the Pay Cycle Board, I don't think they would say it was a firing. It was they asked me to step
1: down. Sure. I don't mean to characterize it in a way that it didn't go down, but you know what I mean.
0: Well, it would have been different.
1: I would have felt, to your question. I understand. If I had walked in and said, Renee,
0: you're fired, get the hell out. I would have questioned my own capabilities. But yeah. what they said is, hey, we don't think you're the right guy. Yeah. And we're going to make that decision, but will you help us figure it out the next step? And I said, absolutely. This is my company. I started as co-founder. I'm going to actually do everything I can. And so I think I was part of the solution. So I didn't totally. feel like... I wasn't respected, incompetent, it. Right. And if you think about it, like I said, all of the investors in pay cycle ended up investing totally. in the bill. Totally. Right. And that was because of the relationships. And that's another thing. It's like, if you can step back and actually embrace how the cheese moves, which is always hard, then I actually think there's more opportunity for you in the future. And so for me, what I took was, okay, why did I end up in that spot? And that's like, okay, I was not clear about my own accountability for me let alone the board. I wasn't clear where I was accountable. I would be like, oh, well, we don't agree. Co-founder and I, CEO, we don't agree. Okay, let's not talk about that. That's an unhappy conversation. Let me go to something we all agree on. Okay, let's go do that. Well, think about parenting. If you only parent on the things you agree on, your kid's going to be a tenth as good a human as if you actually have those really hard conversations on the things you disagree. And they're not fun. Those hard conversations are painful. And yet that's where... The juice is. That's where the vig is in making all of us better.
1: Can I ask you? You said the company has almost 10 x in the last four years. If you 10x in your life from like 18 on, you're doing pretty good. It sounds like you probably don't have class A voting shares today. Absolutely not. Do you get insecure about your ability to continue to lead when the company is on a tear like this? Like, this is not just new territory for Renee. You're like building one of the biggest companies in the world. Like This is new territory for everybody. There's never been a bill. Does that cross your mind or do, do you not let that creep in? No, insecurity is a part of being human. We all have it. And we all have to actually do our
0: best to understand it. Not that you can fully understand it, but understanding your insecurities allows you to understand how to fill, can basically address those insecurities. So one of the things that one of my coaches said to me a long time ago was, as soon as you're hired as the CEO, accept that you've been fired as a CEO. And I think that's good advice for everybody because we're all going to get there. We're all going to be in a position where, and by the way, you know, whether you're fired or you fire yourself, when people quit one company, and go to another, you're fired. It was your own decision. You got there before somebody else did. But in general, you're like, okay, that's not working. I didn't achieve what I wanted to achieve there. I'm going to get myself out of here. I'm going to go someplace else and try it again. So- Accepting that life is not perfect, and that we have mistakes, and embracing those opportunities to learn, I think is one of the more important things that leaders can do. I don't believe I have all the answers about what the CEO bill needs to be 10 years from now. What I do know today is I have all the heart, all the conviction that I'm gonna be asking that question every day and working my tail off to make sure I'm as good as I can be for the company. And when I'm not, I am fine sitting down having that conversation and saying, okay, well, what is the thing that's needed to help this company get to the next level? And I think, for lack of a better term, the lack of ego that's required to lead is something that is, to me, it's a super important part of leadership. And it's not something that's oftentimes embraced. People think, oh, you have to have a big ego to lead. You know, you gotta be the top dog and all that type of stuff. It's like, absolutely not. I really believe every human is leading and every person has a chance to lead every day. It can be as simple as opening up a door for somebody who has a bag full of groceries that you don't know. That's leadership. Like seeing other people's problems and addressing it could be when you're driving home and somebody's zigzagging and is like, get out of the way and just let them get home. I don't know why they'll get home, right? That's leadership. Like these are the things that you can't assume that you have all the answers. And that's something that I've worked hard on is knowing the unknowns and being open to the unknown unknowns coming
1: into my life. When you started Bill, and it, did it just start cooking from the get-go? God, no. It's been 17 years. There were things that were
0: cooking, but from a performance, any measure that somebody on the outside would look at, they'd be like, that's not cooking. I felt like it was cooking. Like i not going to, that story I gave you with my dad. For us, within 10 months from when I hired the team to when I gave him that demo, and for him to be able to say, Holy crap, I get it now, that's humming. But the performance, the revenue performance, like
1: that wasn't. I mean, that was that took a while. And how did that manifest in the company building? Like the fact that it took 17 years. Yeah. I mean, at the start of this, I said, oh, it probably feels like things have gone by so fast that I bet it actually feels like probably 17 years is a long time. Outside the office and behind you is the mural
0: of the first 15 years. It's just all the crazy fun things we did. And, you know, afterwards, I can kind of explain some of the images up there. And so in some ways for me, the time has gone fast because it's one experience. It's been from lots of little experiences leading up to one experience of just leading this company, right? And so every morning I wake up and I ask myself, okay, do I have a better idea about how I can have impact today than I did yesterday? And if I do, then I'm making progress. And the mornings I say, I have no freaking idea. That's when I get worried. Okay. That's when I'm not necessarily the best leader or whatnot and stuff like that. And so when I think back on the product, like every day since we started the company uh, there's only been a handful of days when i'm like i have no idea what i'm going to do next and then it took a long run for me to be like ah that's where i need to go and so i think for me the uh, success is measured differently by everybody the ultimate goal for me is to have an impact on small businesses lives and make a great place for employees to work at where they do some of the best work in their lives and i think that if you measure it that way you can see success every day and make sure that you're not kidding yourselves but make sure that you're actually on that path
1: do you remember how long it took to get to the first million of arr it was probably close to three years
0: i would think so i'd have to go back it has been a long time right i know that in time we were let's see seven years is when we roughly hit 20 million in arr
1: i mean by today's standards not that fast
0: Right. We went public 2019 and the, we're on the fourth anniversary. The trailing revenue in 2019 was 119 million. And we just closed
1: 2023 at a billion 58. So a lot of growth. Talk about the hourglass flipping you're inflecting now in the third trimester of the company. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah. insane. Yeah. And the, the thing scale. that's insane
0: is that there's even more opportunity to inflect going forward. And so that's the power of when you work with SMBs and you make a difference, there's just more and more opportunity to serve
1: them because so few people actually pay attention to them. Is there any other, besides the class A shares, which I actually really love, um, is there any other Silicon Valley or founder conventional wisdom, if you will, that you don't understand or disagree with? I think if we were to talk about value
0: setting, I think values are a super important part of a family, of a culture, of any group of people. I think having foundational values is very different than aspirational values. And I've thought a lot about this because I've worked at places that didn't have values. I've worked at places that had values. I've had schools that had values and other schools that didn't. And what I realized from the first company was that the aspirational values of something like, okay, employees come first or whatever the aspiration is, it didn't translate into how we could lead the company every day. It was kind of obvious things that you should be doing. And so for me, the example of values that I use with the employees is I'm not great at math anymore. Used to be really good at algebra, which is accounting speaks algebra. But calculus is something I was never great at. Anyways, calculus has this thing called a derivative, which actually can describe how water flows down a mountain. It's very foundational when you think about it. And if you want to get to the essence of building a great team and a great culture, understand those things that actually impact the foundation. And actually a side view would be super important is impact your foundation. So when I thought about this for Bill, it's okay. So who do I want to be surrounded by? Who's going to give me energy every day? What are the types of qualities that I want? And so that's where we came up with passion, humility, authenticity, wanting to have fun together, and we have accountability. Originally, we had dedicated. but And the values have changed twice, but probably 60 to 70% is pretty much the same. But having values that are about, hey, okay, let's talk about the people that we're hiring. Do they fit this? And these are characters and qualities that – or irrespective of the business we're in. I just want people that are passionate, that are humble, that are authentic, that like to have fun together, and they're going to hold themselves accountable. That's what I want to work with.
1: Why'd you get rid of dedicated?
0: We felt dedicated was integrated into many of them. I like having five, because I like it to be something folks can focus on. And as we've grown, we felt we needed to remind all of us around the importance of accountability when we're working together with teams and hiring people, that we want people that are self-accountable. And so that was the reason is that we felt the dedication to passion and authenticity, humility, it's kind of implicit. And so that's why we moved that into accountable.
1: Is there something that you think or believe that most people would disagree with? Like things that you kind of get in arguments with friends, family, colleagues, peers about, I don't know, is there some closely held thing that you believe that you think most of the world just doesn't agree with you on? I
0: don't know if they don't agree. Uh, Maybe the way I would answer that is the focus on intentionality over a lifetime has dividends to pay. It's hard as hell. And so I think most people probably think, yeah, and you gave up some things along the way, and we've talked about some of that. I've tried not to, but that intense focus on, okay, I think I said to my kids, I can't remember what the issue was, but again, when they're teenagers, they're starting to push, which is all the right stuff they're pushing on. And they came home and it was something like, well, you know, other kids get to do this and, you know, I'd like to be able to do this. And I said, you know, there's two people in the world that think about your happiness 50 years from now. And that's your mom and your dad. Teachers are thinking about your happiness this year. Your friends think about your happiness this second. So you need them all, but As a parent, I have to think about your life 50 years from now. And you may not agree, and time will tell. And I think that commitment to that type of time frame is something that's hard. It's hard. It's easier as a parent just to say, yeah, just go. Because you're going to be misunderstood in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's the risk you have. And so I think that's the question I often ask myself is, do I have too much intentionality? So far, I'm happy with what I've been able to do from a business perspective, and I feel my kids and my family is very strong, but I do know that some of the best moments in life are when you're spontaneous. Even in the office, if we looked at that mural, I could tell you all those fun memories. It's when one of us, sometimes me, was very spontaneous. And so it's that balance, and my question is always, did I get that right? Did I balance my innate sense of intentionality with my innate sense of fun and spontaneity? What a great place to leave it. Thank you. You're welcome
1: are you hiring? Yeah, well, are there any key roles? On my
0: staff, I'm not hiring. My staff's good. I've,
1: but you're hiring for the bill team?
0: Yeah. Across the company, we always have physicians open. When
1: you hear the word grit, what do you
0: think of? I mean, the first word that comes to mind is persistence. And I think about my dad, but I think you have to balance your persistence with your passion. And again, I think about my dad and humility. And I think the challenge, I think that humility thing is super, super important because grit with arrogance is just... Uh, a pain in the ass to deal with. You really want that humility. And and I think that when you have that passion, I, I'll give you another story about my dad. Once he started playing piano, that's all I, when I was a kid, I just heard him play piano. It was always wonderful. And then for those of your listeners that know Chuck Mangione sometime in like 1976, I think, came out with a song called Feel So Good. And it was a flugelhorn piece. And you probably know. You probably just don't know the the title. Anyways, so he heard it on the radio. He went and bought a Flughorn. I knew that he'd played trumpet. I'd never heard him play trumpet. And first time he played it, I mean, he got it right. And then within like two hours, like, wow, is Chuck Mangione in the house? hadn't played the horn in like 25 years. So you just think about that type of persistence and passion. Like you saw that. And the humility was, hey... I can do this and it may not sound perfect at first and that's okay. And I'll get it right. And you did. So that's life. You got to have all that together.
1: I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than a hundred episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from lightning pod. Thank you all.